And I have to say, when I started my research for the Milgram book, I was a, a, an, an admirer of Milgram. I thought the experiment was ingenious and I'd taken pretty much at face value everything that was presented in textbooks about the results of that research. But in tracking down and talking to people who'd been subjects in that experiment decades later, I really started thinking about ethics in a different way, and that is what do social psychologists owe their subjects when they write about them after an experiment is over? Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Gina Perry, an Australian writer and science historian. She's a registered psychologist and has a PhD from the University of Melbourne, jointly undertaken in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies and the School of Culture and Communications, where she's an associate in the Faculty of Arts. Gina's feature articles, columns, and essays have been published in newspapers and magazines, including The Age, The Australian, Cosmos, and New Scientist. She's the author of two books, including Behind the Shock Machine, The Untold Story of the Notorious Milgram Psychology Experiments, and her newest book, The Lost Boys, Inside Muzaffar Sharif's Robber's Cave Experiment. Gina, welcome to Science for the People. Hello. Thank you for having me. So you've written two books that cover notable or perhaps notorious social psychology researchers and experiments from kind of roughly the same era, uh, Stanley Milgram's studies on obedience and Muzaffar Sharif's studies on group conflict. So what drew you to this period of social psychology? Well, I first got interested in the Milgram obedience experiment because I think like most people, I came across it at university and I found it absolutely fascinating. I was working as a writer and journalist here in Australia and I heard there was a biography of Milgram about to be published and I interviewed the biographer, the author of the book, Dr. Thomas Blass, and he mentioned that there was this extensive archive available at Yale and Once I visited that archive and I could listen to the original recordings of Milgram's experiments, I became fascinated in that idea of the front stage presentations of research, that is the sorts of things we read about in textbooks and journal articles, and then the backstage story, and that is the story of experiments the things that get left out of the official version, the the things that occur when an experiment is being conducted that really makes for a more nuanced and interesting story. So once I'd written the book about Milgram and once I'd tracked down some of his original participants because I felt like it was very important to have the voices of the subjects in these kinds of experiments involved, I... I I guess I became addicted to this whole process of the historical archival research and then the search for participants who could give me some insights into what being part of that experiment or those experiments was like. And Milgram's experiment was very theatrical, very staged, and that was conducted in 1961. Musafa Sharif's experiments began in 1949 and in fact Sharif's research had quite an impact 
in terms of social psychology and the kinds of observations that you could do of people in order to make some kind of statement about human nature. So Milgram and Sharif seem to me to be related and I just find that era fascinating for its theatricality, for the amount of effort and subterfuge that was frequently involved and the deception of subjects. And so I became really fascinated by that idea of the experimenter, what their motivation for doing that kind of research was. And and also a bigger question, I guess, for me was what kinds of deception, self-deception was involved because I found that Milgram certainly had blind spots about his own research and presented things to in a particular way. I was really interested in that era and I was particularly interested in the people who were involved in these experiments because it seemed to me that there was, when I looked at the archival material both for Stanley Milgram and for Musfa Sharif, I was struck by the massive amounts of work involved in pulling these experiments off. So there was a, I, I was very interested in what motivated these particular social psychologists and what kinds of influences did they bring to that research? Because we know when they write their research up, particularly in that era, there was a big focus and an emphasis on being objective and value free. And yet, of course, the research they were conducting uh, was anything but objective and value free in lots of ways. And we're definitely going to get into that uh, because some of those details are some of the most fascinating in both the books. Um, Could you give us a little bit of a a taste of what the milieu was at the time of these two scientists and these two researchers? Um, uh, Sort of a, a social context for this period of social psychology. Were they sort of outliers in the community? Was this was the type of experiments they were running fairly common? I'll talk about Sharif first, mainly because his research, the group experiments that I'm talking about, which culminated in the most famous one, the Robbers Cave study, actually began in 1949. So he ran three group experiments, one in 1949, one in 1953, and one, the final one in 1954. That period was um, notable because it was the McCarthy period in America. Uh, it was a post-World War II era when it came to social psychological research. There was a lot of military funding flowing into social psychology and experimentation. So Musafa Sharif, though, in a way was a bit, as you described, a bit of an outlier in the sense that unlike Stanley Milgram, whose experiment was based very much in a laboratory, Sharif's experiments were based literally in the field or in this case, in all three cases of his summer camp experiments, they took place at a summer camp. And so... His research was really at the sociological end. If you think of social psychology as a a kind of spectrum, there was at one end was the sociological end and the other was the 
the other end was the very controlled laboratory end. And so Sharif's research took place very much at that border between sociology and social psychology. He was observing children in the wild. Uh, there was not the laboratory controls, obviously, that you would have with a single subject as Milgram had. So his experiment was quite unusual that way. In contrast, in 1961, I think the key focus, the key influence on Milgram's research, particularly at that time, was obviously the, the country was still feeling the effects of the Second World War, but notably the trial of Adolf Eichmann was taking place just before Milgram started his experiments. And that trial was being televised across America. And it, people were fascinated. I mean, it was clearly it was 15 years after the end of World War Two, but for many Americans, a new generation particularly, were being introduced to the idea of what had actually happened during the Holocaust. And Hannah Arendt was covering the trial for the New Yorker, and she uh, coined the famous phrase, the banality of evil, to describe Adolf Eichmann Milgram very much picked up on that notion in the conception and the conduct of his experiments. So he was very much hitching his experiments to Arendt's theoretical understanding of the Eichmann trial. So he was really trying to show that his research was very relevant to the Holocaust and, and giving, trying to find a psychological reason for people's participation in such widespread and horrific genocide. So Milgram's experiment took place in a laboratory with individual subjects, a seemingly highly controlled environment, highly scripted, highly deceptive. Um, so in, in terms of comparing the two social psychologists, their methodology was very different, but underneath it they were exploring political, uh, contemporary social concerns. They're quite, like you say, they're, they're interesting to kind of compare to each other, um, in part because Milgram's experience and the obedience experience are so carefully um, and very precisely staged. And in fact, in your book, you talk about how it wasn't just they ran this one experiment, they, they kind of iterated and figured out how to create this very controlled space that would to some extent get them the results that they were looking for. Whereas the robber's cave, uh, the robber's cave experiment was much kind of muddier from both kind of actually muddier, but also more difficult because it wasn't something that was tightly controlled. It was a much larger group of people. Um, you talk in the book on how they, every night, they were just planning the next day's activities to try and figure out how to shape that experiment or what, what actions to take next or whether or not they were ready for the next stage uh, of the experiment. And so you definitely get this vibe looking at the two that, that, that they're both the same kinds of experiments, but also kind of different approaches to try and do sort of the same thing. Absolutely. And if you think about it, 
Milgram's experiment is called a social psychological experiment, but really it's about individual people and their relationship with an individual authority figure. Ironically, there isn't a lot of social influence being explored in that experiment. Sharif's was much closer to that because, and, and as you say, that was one of the reasons that the men each evening could barely keep up. They had to, they had to plan the experiment. They had to plan the activities day by day because it was relatively chaotic. They had no way of predicting which way things would go. They obviously wanted events to unfold in a particular direction, but when you've got that many subjects and you're trying to test particular hypotheses and those subjects are involved in a wide range of camping activities, there's so many elements that are out of your control. So yes, it was muddier, but I feel in some ways that it was so much more lifelike. Milgram's experiment appears to be highly controlled and we certainly are told in all the textbooks depictions that it was a very standardised and carefully run experiment. But as I said earlier, looking at the archival material, the actuality and the way that experiment was conducted was a lot more improvisation and doing things on the run than we've been led to believe. So in both cases, an enormous amount of work involved behind the scenes uh, it was definitely enormous amount of work that is often not reflected in the official write-ups. Um, one of the things you talk about in the Sharif book is that really it's it's the one camp that most people have heard about, that we have looked at and and that researchers have reviewed and that has kind of been made into into the study of note. But there were two other camps that led up to this third one um, that is sort of considered to be the the successful discussion of Sharif's theories. Um, and those ones, in particular, the second one, uh, very much was kind of shoved in a drawer. It was not something that was broadly released into the public to, to understand or even into the kind of research to understand it. It seems to have been broadly kind of hidden. Sharif had a group of men who were working with him as research assistants, part of his research team, and several of them were really insistent that he publish that second study because they felt that it was important to publish even when Sharif regarded that experiment as what he called a failure. They felt there was a lot to learn from that, but he was not interested in doing that. In fact, I think he just wanted to forget that middle experiment entirely. And I should point out here that Milgram, too, was guilty of shoving things in a file drawer and not publishing them. And um, the case, I think the, the best example of that is um, the condition 24 in his experiment, which was where he used people who were loved ones or family members as the teacher and learner, giving electric shocks to one another. And he never published that research. And in his private notes, he wrote that it was the most dramatic it was the most dramatic demonstration of disobedience to authority. So ironically, Milgram didn't publish a study that really undermined his theory and Sharif 
very much the same. We'd call it today the file drawer effect. It definitely has that kind of feel. Um, just for, I think probably everybody knows what the experiment uh, from Milgram was looking to try and test. But can you give us a quick overview of the robber's cave experiment and what the, what, what, um, Sharif was looking to try and test in that experiment? Sure. The robber's cave experiment was very much a experiment about the influence of the groups in our lives on the way we behave. So Sharif's passion in life, actually, I think, was demonstrating that even in ways that we're not aware of, our membership with, of, our membership of and our identification with particular groups during our lifetimes has a big influence on the way we behave. So the robber's cave experiment, what the, ex, the hypothesis that he was testing, what he was trying to show at robber's cave was that if you bring two groups of people together and you put them in competition, that hostility and conflict will naturally arise between them. So what he was trying to do there was to demonstrate that it's the conditions in society that create conflict between groups. It's not part of human nature that animosity and conflict and violence is inevitable. What he was trying to show was that it is inequality, it's unequal access to resources that is the source of conflict between different groups. It's the thing that creates prejudice. It's the thing that creates negative stereotypes that occur between different groups of people. He had this very strong belief about the social environment creating the conditions for conflict. And in my reading and research, it became really clear to me that one of the major influences on Sharif and one of the major things that got him interested in this topic was his experience when he came to America for the first time. He arrived just in time for the beginning of the Great Depression and it was the poverty that he saw, it was the inequality, it was the homelessness of people in New York City that really shocked him. And he gravitated, like a lot of other social scientists at that time, towards uh, Marxism as a way of understanding what was happening. So in lots of ways, the Robber's Cave experiment reflects that early commitment of his and his passionate belief in reducing inequality between groups of people as a way of bringing out a permanent state of peace. And so at Robber's Cave, he had these two groups that he brought together in competition in order to demonstrate that if they're competing, the hostility and negative stereotyping will erupt between them. So there were two groups of boys. And then once things got to the point where the two groups really could not stand the sight of one another almost, he was able to bring them together in what he called uh, a superordinate goal. That is, he brought the two groups together to solve a problem that they, neither group could solve on their own. So the boys were forced, in a way, to cooperate. And in doing so, the animosity between the two groups, 
the hostility between the two groups gradually um, abated and the boundaries between those two groups of boys that had been very strong began to dissolve. So in a way, it was a very hopeful experiment. It was a very hopeful ending because Sharif was able to demonstrate that with social engineering, with um, an intervention where you have warring tribes brought together to face a problem that's bigger than themselves, you can actually institute peace and harmony. It was a very powerful message at that time in post-World War II. <clears throat> Sorry. It was a very powerful message at that time in post-World War II America. And uh, it was a very powerful message generally in, in the period of the Cold War too. One of the things that I think strikes most people when you start to dig in a bit more to the robber's cave is that it really focused on kids. The subjects were groups of, I believe they were 11-year-old boys. So why run this experiment on kids, especially when we're talking about creating hostilities between groups and then trying to unite them? Um, what was his goal with using kids? Why not use adults? Well, actually, that was a real question I had myself. I wondered about, particularly I wondered about why he chose children of that age. When I did my research, I found that there are a lot of psychologists already using summer camp as a bit of an outdoor laboratory for studying children. And in that sense, they were looking at summer camp as a way of building character. And it was this sort of notion about the moral development of children that was very important uh, in that post-World War II period, particularly with the rise of things like Little League, where children were being taught baseball, but at the same time, they were being taught through baseball the uh, values of uh, American democracy, for example. So, it wasn't unusual that psychologists were studying children in summer camp. What was different about Sharif's research was that he didn't just visit children at a camp and watch them play or interact. He actually created a summer camp of his own. So he set up a very elaborate hoax, if you like, a very elaborate scenario to attract 11-year-old boys to this camp so that he could study them, he could um, manipulate them into forming these different groups and then um, record what happened afterwards. So I doubt that he could have used younger children because I think um, probably the ethical issues in using children under 10, uh, there's also the um, the developmental issues. You've, you've what he wanted to be able to do in studying children, and again, this wasn't uncommon, was to extrapolate to adults and from there to humankind, which is exactly what he did. And I found that a very strange experience going through all the archival material, reading the descriptions of what was happening between these boys, who he referred to a lot of the time in his scientific writing as subjects but there were continual reminders that these were children and so 
even though the theory was about group conflict, society, humankind, at the same time what he was studying was groups of children far from home and sometimes teasing, bullying and fighting with one another. It was a strange, uh, I want to use the word mismatch, but that's the wrong word. It was, it was a, I just felt that it was a huge leap once I started looking at that archival material to extrapolate from the behaviour of children in that environment to humankind at large seemed to me uh, really a longbow. It definitely has, reading through the experiments and the intention, it has a kind of Lord of the Flies feel, and I'm not actually sure which came first, the Lord of the Flies book or these experiments. Um, but this idea of children as a kind of proxy for adults of the kind of unrestricted by adult concerns or maybe somehow sort of closer to true human nature, I find is a thread that sometimes you pick up in, if not always science, but certainly we have an idea that somehow children are like purer humans, some kind of pure distilled humanity, I think. Yes, I agree. As many adults, I think that's the way Sharif regarded them. And uh, I actually looked to see whether there was any real connection between Lord of the Flies and the Robber's Cave experiment. And I went to the University of Exeter to look at Golding's manuscript of Lord of the Flies. I found that he completed the manuscript in October 1951. So Sharif's first group experiment was in 1949. So we could officially say that Sharif predated Golding. William Golding and Musfa Sharif were very much of the same view in terms of looking at children as mini-adults and as stand-ins for society at large. But Golding's view of human nature, I think, was much bleaker. And it, Lord of the Flies, I think, even if you haven't read the book, uh, it is about the boys in a wild and isolated environment and the emergence of a kind of natural savagery. And Golding did quote at one point, Golding did say that he felt that man produces evil like a bee produces honey. Sharif's view was much more optimistic than that because he actually felt it was the social environment that created the evil that Golding was talking about, that it wasn't innate and it was not inevitable. So they did have very divergent views. Um, but it's so interesting to me that Golding was exploring in his novel that notion of the savagery of children. And around the same time, Sharif was exploring through social psychology the savagery of society, if you like. 
It is quite interesting to me that Sharif was looking to show how society creates conflict rather than something innately in the person. And I find that reading through the book, in particular, reading through the challenges they had in their second experiment, the one that's kind of been shoved in the drawer, um, that they really struggled with actually creating uh, creating that kind of tension with these groups. They, they never quite got through that stage of the experiment where they were creating this kind of group versus group dynamic. Um, which I found actually really, uh, really quite an optimistic outcome, even though it was considered to be a failure for Sharif and the experimenters because they didn't get what they wanted. Um, the, the resistance of those kids to being driven against each other, I found really quite uplifting and quite an optimistic outcome. Yes, it's so ironic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that Sharif regarded it as it, Sharif regarded it as a scientific failure, and yet, as readers, when we understand what happened in that middle experiment, it seems like it was a success. But I think one of the one of the things that is so often downplayed, and and you know, Milgram was guilty of this as well is there's often when social psychologists of that era write about their subjects, they really do overplay the gullibility of the people that they're studying and they really do overplay the idea that um, the deception was watertight and effective. And, of course, they have to overplay it, I guess, because... Any experiment that relies on deceiving the subjects is kind of built on a house of cards. With Sharif's second experiment, I think what was so interesting was how observant the boys were of the men. And this came about because the two groups of boys, actually, when they arrived at that Middle Grove camp in 1953, they arrived in a single bus and the experiment allowed for them to spend the first day mixing together as a single group, doing things quite spontaneously. They could play uh, horseshoes. They could go swimming in the creek. They could go fishing. They could play archery, which they all loved. And by the end of that first day, the boys had started to find buddies and friends and what Sharif did in the second stage of the experiment was deliberately separate those pairs of friends and what he did was announce that the large group was going to be divided into two groups and each group would be in a tent on opposite sides of a stream, actually quite far away from each other. And when Sharif's assistant read out which boys were going to be in which tent and it became clear to the children that they were being separated from a buddy that they just met, the boys really objected and they they wanted to bargain with the men. You know, they wanted to swap. They wanted to be in the tent with the boy that they just made friends with. And so when the men refused to let them do that, 
I read the um, observer notes of one group of boys and the observer was outside their tent eavesdropping on their conversation and the boys were going over and over amongst themselves why had they been separated from their friends? Had they done something wrong? Were they being punished? Which of the particular adults might they have um, insulted or offended in some way? So what happened as a result of that was the boys began to watch the men very closely and that made a difference in that experiment too because the boys began to notice manipulations that they perhaps might not have done if they hadn't have been alert at that point. So getting them to fight one another was quite difficult in lots of ways because each time the two teams were brought together for a competition and there was supposed to be fights erupting and... Um, name-calling and bullying and even physical violence, a lot of the time the boys were happy to see their former friends. And in fact, what Sharif found in that camp study was that the groups themselves began to disintegrate. There was, I, I noticed certainly in the observer notes that I read and in the material I looked at in the archives, there were lots of descriptions of bullying happening. Happen there were lots of descriptions of bullying occurring within groups rather than between groups. So the men spent a lot of time in that middle middle grove experiment in 1953, trying to egg on the conflict between the two groups. So they would, for example, they would vandalise one group's clothing or they would smash up food that was left out for one particular group. And what they were hoping was that one group would blame the other. It was a sort of a scapegoating exercise. And each time they did that, there was a, a kind of a sizzle of uh, anger and animosity between the groups, but time after time, they seemed able to resolve their differences so it was a bit of a nightmare for Sharif because this experiment had um, taken up a lot of his funding dollars and involved a huge amount of staff and it was very difficult to get those boys to fight. It was quite interesting that one of the main mechanisms that they tried to use uh, in, I think, all of the camps was sports uh, in order to drive the boys apart, which uh, kind of controversially, or not, maybe not controversially, but counterintuitively, actually, they really struggled to get that to drive a wedge in a lot of the scenarios, in part, uh, it sounds like, because the idea of sport also inherently brings with it the, an idea of fair play. Yes, and this was one of the um, points that I found. One of the boys from the Middle Grove experiment, Doug Grissett, was very insistent that, as I said earlier, Little League, which was something that all the boys were involved in, was about coaching you in fair sportsmanship. And he said that, it was absolutely frowned on 
in Little League to be a bad sport. And that is at the end of every Little League game, you lined up and you shook hands with the opposing team. Uh, you congratulated the other team when they won. If your team won, you did three cheers for the losing team. He said that these kinds of expectations that Sharif had at summer camp, using sport as a way of driving a wedge between the children, he frankly thought was misguided. And it does explain why the men had to work very hard to discourage the boys from behaviour that would normally be valued in in their homes and in their schools. So there was a sense in which the boys at both camps were worried and troubled by the kinds of behaviour that they felt the men were encouraging. And uh, especially those boys who had heard about summer camp from maybe older brothers or friends. Um, most of them understood that camp was a place where you would go to learn teamwork, um, to to learn the values for, you know, cooperative and happy living. And they were being encouraged to do the opposite one way that Sharif did that was to make the competition winner takes all. That is, the winning team would win this prize of 12 long-bladed knives and a trophy and a ribbon for each boy on the winning team, and the losers would get nothing. So every night over dinner in the mess hall, the men would make quite a display of the knives and talk up the um, the pleasure of owning these prizes as a way of egging the boys on. It's so fascinating to me reading both of these books, how similarly each group had to work quite hard in order to create the scenarios, um, in particular at at the summer camp experiences, um, you get this sense, uh, in particular in the second camp, that the um, experimenters were there trying to act as more observers. They were supposed to be a bit more standoffish, kind of not involved, not seem to be directing or, in, you know, encouraging any kind of particular behavior in the boys. They were looking for that conflict to kind of spontaneously erupt in the second camp. Um and when they had troubles with that camp in the third one, reading through the notes in your book, it sounds like they took a much firmer hand with manipulating those children and those groups early on to try and it sounds like to encourage that kind of both in-group behavior that we see uh, emerging from those two different groups of boys in the third camp, but also in the conflict that is driven between them. And it, it seems, and, and again, it's difficult, but it seems like there was definitely some some prodding or some encouragement in some way from the adults at the camp in order to get this conflict to start, but also to make sure that it, it escalated. Yes, particularly in that Middle Grove experiment in 1953, as you say, Sharif actually had a staff member whose job 
was to be, quote, the scientific conscience, unquote, of the camp. And there was a lot of emphasis in that middle experiment on the men being objective and not influencing the behaviour of the boys. I think what was so ironic about that was that not all the staff agreed with that point of view clearly. And in fact, as the boys in that camp failed to generate animosity between one another, there was a widening rift growing between the staff team with half the staff wanting to maintain that scientific objectivity and the other half desperate to get this conflict happening between the boys. And there was a great quote from one of Sharif's research assistants at that Middle Grove experiment who said he complained to Sharif and he said, it's like getting into the maze and pushing the rat and you don't push the rat. And I thought that was such a great analogy because – On one hand, you had the ones who wanted to simply watch what the rat did, i.e. just watch what the boys did. And then on the other hand, you had Sharif and his graduate students desperate to get this particular theory um, proven who were much more actively involved. So by the time they got to Robber's Cave in 1954, you could say that they'd learnt a powerful lesson there. Uh, There was no one at Robber's Cave in 1954 who played the role of scientific conscience. That was also because by now Sharif had very little research funding left and really the Robber's Cave experiment was conducted with the crumbs of the money that he had from the Rockefeller Foundation. There were up to 12 staff engaged in the 1953 experiment and only four at Robber's Cave in 1954. So they had a huge cut in the resources and the time and the staff available to them and they were under enormous pressure because this was the last of their funding and they had three weeks at this summer camp to um, enable these things to happen. And so the boys at Robber's Cave, if they approached the adults about unfair behaviour on the part of the other group, which you would expect at summer camp, you would expect the adults to intervene if the adults believed there was any bullying going on between groups The boys were surprised and troubled, I think, to find that the adults were not interested in taking any action against boys who normally we would be regarding as misbehaving. So you have two groups of children who are a very long way from home at a remote state park in Oklahoma with a group of men who are behaving in ways that the boys don't really understand, but what they do understand is that the men want them to behave in a certain way, and I think that had a big impact on the results of Robber's Cave. The boys understood, even unconsciously, I think, if not explicitly, that the men wanted them to belittle and harass and hate their opponents in the sporting competition. 
So uh, looking back at both of these men and uh, both of these studies, they're clearly driving towards illustrating an idea that the scientists clearly think must be true, rather than uh, designing an experiment to find out if a hypothesis was true. They're not, I think, in either case, really seeking to disprove their hypothesis in any way. They're just showing, trying to show that that their hypothesis absolutely must be true. Be true to illustrate that that truth in them, um, and I think that's something that scientists often struggle with still today, but definitely in the past, and in particular, I think social social psychology and psychology really struggles with this because it can often just be a difficult enough hurdle to design a clever enough experiment to even test the thing you're trying to test. Never mind making sure you're approaching it from a from the right direction, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I found when I looked back to the experimentation that preceded Sharif's, I looked at the work of Kurt Lewin, who was a um, German-Jewish social psychologist who also studied groups of children. And I found that Lewin was a big influence on Sharif because Lewin was a gestalt uh, psychologist and his views about group behaviour were uh, had a big influence on Musfa Sharif. But Lewin's approach was very much that an experiment was a demonstration of something you knew was true, something that you'd observed in real life so that the experiment became a way of affirming what you already knew. And this was actually part of that research tradition. I I was interested to come across that because it explained a lot to me about Sharif's approach in particular. And I also felt that I found that a very useful way of thinking about Sharif's experiment because I had very much the same feeling that Sharif had a very clear view in mind and, in fact, his research associate, one of his students, O.J. Harvey, who I interviewed before he died, he said that at Robber's Cave, Sharif had a clear script in mind and O.J. Harvey was very unapologetic about that, which kind of surprised me. But for me, it it affirmed that Sharif had adopted that Lewinian approach. Stanley Milgram was further removed from Kurt Lewin because of time and age and a generational shift, but I still think that there are those factors outside a social psychological experiment that shape the hypotheses and that shape the way an experiment is done. And in Milgram's case, it was the research funding and with his research applications, he was promising to explore a particular problem. In his research application, he, for example, stressed the link between obedience to authority and the brainwashing of American prisoners of war, supposedly by the Chinese during the Korean War. So Milgram was making links already before the experiments had begun to the behaviour of people during wartime and particularly to people 
who were fighting in wars, whether they were soldiers or in the case of um, his experiment, he was actually looking at the perpetrators of genocide. And I think there are factors like that that shape the way an experiment is set up and I think they're factors which shape the way an experimenter interprets and presents their results. And what's often excluded from the accounts that we read in textbooks and the accounts that we read in journal articles are those personal and social and cultural factors that have had an influence on the research itself. And the more you can unearth those and be transparent about them, I think the better the science will be. It's interesting looking back on both of these experiments and looking at them rather than just uh, the write-up, as you say, the kind of final paper or final book write-up, looking at them in the wider environment that they took place and the kind of social and political, geopolitical context of that time and place. I think that while we... And I think there is some controversy about what we can actually drive a value from these experiments over time. Uh, I think that has changed over time as we look back. But there clearly is some value we can derive from these, even just to understand what was going on in science at the time, what those interesting questions were, and what the approaches were to try and answer those questions. There's no doubt in my mind that Milgram and Sharif were trying to explore profound problems through their research. But the question is really, in Milgram's case, can you really explore or provide an explanation for genocide through such a highly staged and deceptive experiment? And added to that, in Milgram's case, with really very um, inconsistent and equivocal results. Despite his presentation of the research, he was quite emphatic that he'd found the answer to the behaviour of people like Eichmann during World War II. Uh, the data actually tells a very, very different story. So th they were struggling with profound questions but their way of exploring those, particularly in Milgram's case, I think, was very ill-suited. Um, so it, it's, I think it, they are important questions that we should keep trying to probe, but whether or not we have the tools to answer that through social psychology is really the question. In Sharif's case, too, I think a factor and a, a really big influence that was very interesting to me was his own autobiographical influences, I guess. The fact that he grew up in a country, Turkey, in the early years of the Republic when the, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, um, where very diverse groups of people had lived under the Sultan for generations, different Sultans, but generations and centuries and then you have the establishment of a republic and you have all the ties that bound people together dissolving and you have a republic 
that its its first task really is to find a way of uniting people with a single identity. And Sharif was sent abroad like a lot of young Turkish nationalists at that time to study and bring back the tools to help with the formation of that new republic, to come back with the tools that would help warring groups to find common ground and live peacefully together. So that as well, I think, had a profound influence on the kinds of questions that he was asking through his research. It definitely sounds like he was motivated to try and find an answer that would assist um, that would assist him back home. And, and I guess it's impossible to know for sure, but it, you can definitely create a strong sense of, of that based on how he grew up in Turkey, what his experiences were in Turkey, but also, um, the way that his research went and that kind of hopeful view of the future, as you said before, whereas Milgram's is very pessimistic. Um, yes. Sharif's is very optimistic. Yes. Well, I think. I think Milgram was hamstrung by trying to find an answer to something that was uh, very difficult to answer using that experiment and using a laboratory-based scenario. So Sharif's also, I think, was more nuanced because he was also, in some ways, I felt that the Robber's Cave experiment was a metaphor for his preoccupations about Turkey, but on the other hand, and, and very ironically, uh, around the time of the Robbers Cave experiment, he found that he was unable to return to Turkey, that his political views had made him more than unwelcome. In fact, if he'd gone back, he probably would have been tried and jailed. So he he was stranded. He was an outsider in the US. He, he never intended to settle there permanently. So he was an exile from his homeland, his culture. Um, so there were on lots of levels, I found that there were echoes of Sharif's life, not just his childhood, but his life as an adult in America, that there were echoes of that too because when he first arrived in America, racism against Turks was rife because so many of the newspaper reports of the um, independence war in Turkey were provided by American missionaries who were very um, pro-Greece and very anti-Turk. So... Sharif encountered a lot of racism when he arrived in America. So th there were lots of levels on which the personal and the political were intersecting for Sharif and were being played out, I felt, in Robbers Cave State Park. There's also looking back on both experiments, in particular, as I was reading through the books, and it, it sounded like this was a very common through thread for yourself as well as you were writing them. Looking back and thinking about both of these experiments from an ethical standpoint, um, what 
scientific ethics, in particular for psychology or social psychology experiments, means. Um, and for Milgram, there was a, a very strong pushback after his experiments happened to his research, but I'm not sure that Sharif ever experienced the same kind of intensity of pushback um, from an ethical standpoint. Yes, Milgram's experiments certainly brought the ethical issues to the forefront in a way that they hadn't been before. My understanding is that uh, there was a lot of discussion in social psychological circles in the 50s and 60s about ethics, but nothing, not in a public way. So... Milgram's experiment, most often people, when they talk about the ethics of Milgram's research, they talk about the welfare and the treatment of his subjects in the lab, um, what, what long-lasting damage might have been done to those people who took part in Milgram's research, what happened to them after they left the lab, which was one of the questions I had when I started my research and I have to say, when I started my research for the Milgram book, I was a, a, an, an admirer of Milgram. I thought the experiment was ingenious and I'd taken pretty much at face value everything that was presented in textbooks about the results of that research. But in tracking down and talking to people who'd been subjects in that experiment decades later, I really started thinking about ethics in a different way and that is what do social psychologists owe their subjects when they write about them after an experiment is over so it's not just what they how they debrief them in the lab if they debrief them and in Milgram's case I found in fact that he hadn't debriefed most of his subjects that um, 80 percent of them had received a written letter a year after the experiments began explaining what they were about. So his misrepresentation of his debriefing procedures, his suppression of results, his misrepresentation of subjects' belief in the experimental scenario, these were all factors that I believe are about the ethics of the conduct of research as well as the way you write about subjects afterwards. So some of the people I spoke to decades later were very reluctant to talk about their experience as subjects in Milgram's experiment, whether they'd been obedient subjects or not, because who hasn't heard about the Milgram experiment and who hasn't heard the subjects described in terms of Nazis and genocide? So... That, that was a very powerful uh, lesson, I felt, in thinking about the ethics. It doesn't just extend to how people feel when they leave your laboratory. In Sharif's case, well, he was able to sidestep the ethical questions altogether in a way because, again, remembering he preceded Milgram, but Sharif was very careful in setting up the experiment not to reveal to the participants or their parents that this was actually an experiment. He talked about it being a study of leadership and he talked about the boys being selected as part of a program that would help them develop skills for healthy and spiritual living was one of the quotes. 
So the way that the invitation to the parents to have their children included in this camp was framed was very much in a way that would make adults would was very much in a way that would encourage parents to send their boys along because it it was framed as a privilege that the boys had been selected and chosen for this particular study. So he was able to go, so Sharif was able to fly under the radar because no one realised, I think, at that point exactly what was going on. In fact, I contacted some of the boys when I was writing the book and the first time I spoke to them was for most of them the first time they understood that that troubling summer camp that they'd been involved in as an 11-year-old had been a piece of psychological research. Have there been any follow-up studies or reviews of the people who would have been subjects in studies like Milgram's experiment or Robber's Cave as to how that study or being a a subject there would have impacted them from an ethical standpoint or just from a a long-standing kind of formative experience in their life? Because I think both sound like, for very different reasons, would be, if I had experienced them, uh, definitely a formative experience. If I had been in that laboratory, you know, deciding whether or not I wanted, uh, I was going to shock somebody, even if I thought maybe something was up. Um, I think that it's likely I would be haunted by that experience, even had I been debriefed, I think that would that would leave me a bit a bit haunted by that decision, depending on how I ended up going. And it sounds like most of us would end up pushing that button. Um in the same and in the same vein, I think as a eleven year old child attending a camp like the one at Robber's Cave I think potentially that would have left an impression on me. Um, and there's a, a few people that you speak with who attended that camp who do feel, I think, in retrospect, that that experience did leave a lasting impression on who they are and impacted their lives. When it came to the Milgram experiment, I found that there was no difference between people who pressed one button or went all the way. The ones that I spoke to who had been involved in it felt ashamed and really bothered by their participation. So it's it did have a lasting impact. Milgram sent out a questionnaire a year after the experiments began. But as for any long-term follow-up, nothing formal has been done as far as I know uh, I'm the only person who has interviewed subjects. There have been a couple of other writers who've interviewed one or two, but I uh, was able to track down quite a number for my book. So the long-term effects, I think, are really related to how people live with an experience and what they make of it over time. And in the case of the boys from the Robbers Cave and the other camp studies, they've only just recently found out that they were involved in a psychological experiment. So in some ways, they're still processing that experience. They're looking back on that experience and thinking about themselves in a different way. As you say, debriefing 
can go some way to alleviating people's concerns, but it depends who's conducting it and it depends how that debriefing is handled. And in the case of the boys, I felt that in a way in writing the book and in going on that research journey, I was conducting a kind of debriefing, if you like, for the boys who were involved because they had more questions for me than I expected. In fact, when I first started contacting people, I thought they were just going to be answering my questions when, in fact, they wanted to know all sorts of things about the experiment. And so for me, writing the book and doing the research was a way of answering those questions for them. And obviously, one of the big ones for a lot of the men that I spoke to, and they're all in their 70s now, was why was I chosen and what did my parents know at the time? Mm. So it was very important for them to understand how their parents had been approached, what their parents had been told, and and what their parents thought they were signing their boys up to. And you know, I'm I'm happy to be able to be able to have said to those boys, well, all of the parents who agreed to send their boys along were. Um, believed that they were sending their boys on a summer camp that would provide them with opportunities that they would not otherwise be able to have. So that was important in, I felt, in a in a sense of um, understanding how it had all come about. Looking back on the time you've spent uh, researching these two men and their research programs um, and this period in social psychology, for you, looking back on having written these two books and done the research here, is there a particular thing that you feel most strongly about or that you've taken from the experience of of spending the time to dig through all of these notes and watch all of the videos of the experiments. I'll go through all the pictures, talk to all the people that you've been able to find who were involved, both as subjects and as experimenters. Is there, is there sort of a, an echo from that that you really feel has, has been left with you? Yeah, I feel very, very strongly that the perspective of Subjects, and I don't even like using that term because um, it actually portrays people as objects to be studied. But the perspective of the participants is crucial in understanding and making sense of social psychological research like Milgram's and Sharif's. Milgram always maintained the view when you read what he's written about the experiment and you read his journal articles that he's the expert on the behaviour of his subjects. But there was very, very limited opportunity for subjects to give their perspective on the experiment, to talk about their thoughts or their feelings or their insights. And there is so much more of a rich picture of Milgram's experiment when you take into account the perspective of those subjects. and. I've just completed a journal article with some colleagues where we've looked at the behaviour of Milgram's subjects during the experiment and compared it with their discussions of 
how much they believed that the experiment was real. And what we've done is we've reanalyzed a paper that Milgram never published himself. And we found that people who were convinced that the man was in pain and was being harmed gave lower level shocks than people who were skeptical. So it turns the idea that Milgram promulgated about our innate tendency for slavish obedience to authority on its head. So I'd say the same about Sharif's experiment in terms of hearing the voices of the people being studied and how important that is in understanding research, that if we're studying humans and we're studying social interactions between people, we need to include the insights of subjects themselves. Unfortunately, in social psychology, there's often the view that human subjects are unreliable narrators of their own experiences, that social psychologists have to trick and deceive them into believing something is happening in experiments so that they can covertly study their behaviour. And I think that it's a uh, it's an anachronism. It's a outdated and unhelpful way of viewing human subjects, and I think it really limits the kind of research that can be done. Having said that, the appeal of these kinds of experiments is, you know, the theatrics, the trickery, the um, the kind of hoaxing that goes on, that there's a cleverness there that I think people like Milgram in particular and uh, his contemporaries in that kind of theatrical social psychological research where there's, a, there's in a sense where the scientist is um, enjoying the show. There is definitely in both of these, but particularly in Milgram's, but I think also in the Robbers Cave experiment, a feel of a kind of candid cameraness um, in in reading what happened um, and understanding that you're seeing people who are being deceived or you're seeing people in a constructed situation acting as if they're not being watched, even though there's obviously a blurry line. Some people clearly had some feeling that they were being watched or understood that they were at least in an experiment. Um, but there is that same kind of allure, I think, as a third party reading about these after the fact. I feel broadly the same um, as I do about some things that I've seen on shows like Candid Camera, in particular when some of those shows start to veer on, on an ethical gray space, because uh, those shows do do that as well sometimes. I totally agree, and it's so interesting, isn't it, when you think about watching a show like Candid Camera, who do you identify with? Mm. You don't usually identify with the person being pranked. There's a kind of sense in which I feel that you're being encouraged to be complicit with the person who's perpetuating the hoax. I think the same principle, particularly with Milgram's experiment, applies. People revel in in the ingenuity of it and the cleverness of the setup. And 
when you identify with the experimenter that way and you look at the people in the experiment as subjects who are supposedly revealing something natural about human nature, you're also distancing yourself from the very behaviour that Milgram is claiming is innate and universal. So there's a strange a strange sense, I think, in which we feel superior to people in experiments like Milgram's, even though what he's saying is that those people are us. I really don't. Pe- I really don't think most people believe that they are the same as the people in Milgram's experiment, and that links back, I think, to something else that really you asked me. What else really stays with me about this research? And that is that it's research that seems to me to have a very strong moral message. Even though it's dressed up as science, there is a strong moral message implicit in experiments like Milgram's, in Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiment and so on, the Kitty Genovese bystander effect experiment. All of these experiments have a kind of a moral and that I find uh, interesting, troubling and very unscientific. <laughs> it is interesting that it, these experiments are often trying to teach us something about human nature that is important for us to recognize and be aware of because quite often these experiments um, with the exception of Robber's Cave, which is a much more optimistic one, they're quite often trying to show us or reveal something that's quite pessimistic about human nature. And as you say, our initial always first instinct and sometimes lasting instinct is to distance ourselves from that reality. We're told that, you know, 90 whatever percent of people did something terrible. And we're like, ah, oh, but I would be in that 2%. I'd definitely be in that 2%. And, and ultimately, we can't all be in that 2%. Well, I'd question the 90 anyway. Mm. I mean, I think, I think we need to be a hell of a lot more critical about the kinds of presentations of data that people make from experiments like these. And what I was bowled over by when I went to the Yale archives was even something simple as, okay, what percentage of Milgram's subjects were fully obedient? Finding the answer to that question was very complicated for me hmm. because Milgram did 24 different variations, most of them with a maximum of 40 subjects. And so if you regard it as 24 separate experiments, which is what Milgram did, so which one of those 24 experiments do you extract as the one that makes a statement about the universality of slavish obedience to authority. Do you say it's the one where 30% of the people went all the way in that particular group? Do you say it's the one where people 65%? So what I was very surprised about with Milgram's research was that the takeaway message that in his most famous variation of the experiment, 65% of people will administer what they think are lethal shocks to a learner was actually 65% of a group of 40 people. Um, So when I say we should be more critical, I also mean I think we should be looking at primary sources. 
when we read depictions of these experiments in textbooks, the depiction is often quite different from the original research, which is understandable because not everybody who writes a textbook has the time to go back to original sources. But certainly when we're studying um, these experiments in undergrad, in high school even, and in postgrad, we should be looking at the original documents and the data and really asking questions about the way it's presented. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance that often gets lost in a just-so story that fits on a single page mm. of a textbook. Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. They're both really fascinating books, uh, and I very much enjoyed reading them and learning a lot more about these two experiments that I'd heard about, and both the controversy around them at the time where there was one, but also um, I feel, like you say, I, I feel much more controversial myself towards them than I did before, which I think is a good thing. So do I, and I'm glad to hear it. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. And if you'd like to learn more about Gina Perry, her writing, or her books, as per usual, we have links for you to click in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.